Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon thee the heavenly God as upon a Father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, and forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Please welcome Professor Eric Janislawski. It's good to see you all again. Now, now keeping in mind what Deacon Carnazzo just said, figuring you wouldn't have your Bibles. No, just kidding. Uh, I made handouts. So, from last time, if the detailed reading of Zechariah and a number of cross-references to Scripture were a little bit daunting, there is... A promissory note paid from last time. And then for today, I made another just one pager on the things we're going to talk about today in Hosea and then Micah. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time. Remember, I told you last time that we had two difficult nuts to crack in terms of minor prophets' prophecies. We spent a little while on the Joshua prophecy last time. Two connections I failed to point out. I put it on the handout that I just gave to you, so I won't go back to Zechariah today. But those two difficult verses in Matthew, he shall be called a Nazarene, comes from Nazar, branch. And we spent a lot of time on those branch prophecies last time. I don't know if you remember that. And then also uh, the connection to he shall be called, sometimes in Luke it's translated day star or orient from on high. And that's also related there too. So I, I left you some more connecting notes and all the citations that I gave last time that seemed to be calling up a lot of people's distant recall from Isaiah and things like that. So if you wanted your citations, they should be there for you. And today I wanted to turn to Hosea. Now if you remember, last time we talked about some sound norms for the interpreting of minor prophets, and I wanted to uh, just recall a little bit of that again because Matthew in his Gospel has a string of prophecy fulfillment citations in his course of relating our Lord's infancy. Only two Gospels have what we call infancy narrative, Matthew and Luke. And in Matthew, he has a string of things because this happened to fulfill what was written in Scripture, and then he gives you some citation. Uh, But there's one that you might, if you were a a myopic, narrow-minded exegete, say that Matthew really fouled. Matthew 2.15, this is right uh, after the flight into Egypt. You all know that moment in our Lord's infancy when King Herod, having been alarmed by the fact that there was born a king of the Jews, sought to kill all the infants. And so, alerted by the angel, Joseph takes the holy infant and his mother Mary into Egypt for safe refuge. And Matthew writes in 2.15, And Jesus remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, that's a citation of Hosea 11.1. And if you pay attention to the first rule of exegesis, which is context, 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 you might go, well, Matthew, that's about the tribe of Ephraim. What are you talking about? Out of Egypt I have called my son. Nothing to do with that, historically. Uh, Or maybe worse, you think that Matthew was like one of these indulgent literati who simply grab flowery quotes that have the right word or key phrase in them and apply them pell-mell to some event he thinks is relevant as literary adornment. That's not what's going on in the Gospel at all. So I wanted to take a brief look at Hosea uh, in a way that we can get into the mind of Matthew 
a Jewish writer deeply immersed in the spirituality of the Old Testament, seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of so many things that had been promised to the prophets of old. So you really have to get into Matthew's mentality and Matthew's own perspective in the Old Testament. That's sometimes a warning sign. Things can seem opaque to us, not because the Bible itself is irrational or unclear, but simply because over the 2,000 years that separates us from the Gospels and even more from the Old Testament, sometimes we lose the fullness that the Gospel authors had or the early fathers had in writing about Scripture, and that's a sign for us to do some retrieval. So, we'll do a little bit of earnest retrieval on Hosea, and then the next bits will be lighter uh, with Micah and with Malachi. Does that sound good? Okay. Um, So how can Matthew apply this text of Hosea to the infancy of Jesus? Is it mere wordplay? To get what Hosea is doing, you have to be aware of two themes that are never sort of told to you in a nice pithy verse. The first is sort of understanding the entire book of Hosea. Not a very big book. It's only 13, 14 chapters. As a nice compact unit, there really is a driving theme throughout the whole book. The whole book turns on a poetical metaphor debuted in its first two chapters. Hosea makes an analogy, makes a metaphor. He says that Yahweh's covenant with Israel is like a bridegroom's covenant with his bride. Does that make sense? And that's a theme you can actually trace all throughout the Old Testament. You can go all the way back to the first commandment that Moses received from Sinai. Right, I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, for I am a jealous God. Uh, Yahweh begins to teach his people about the monotheism, the worship of him alone that is due to him, on analogy to how a man will brook no rivals for the attention of his beloved. Yes? It's a nice direct metaphor. Just as no man is going to have his woman fooling around with some other man. You can already see in the Pentateuch uh, this metaphor of the monotheistic fidelity described as marital fidelity. And contrary-wise, infidelity, apostasy, idolatry, described as harlotry. And so there are roots of this metaphor that go all the way back to the Pentateuch, but Hosea takes it to a whole new level. In an extended prophetical meditation, he introduces us to Israel as the unfaithful bride. And that's a nice metaphor. And we could, if our job was to go through Hosea lovingly today, we could do that, but we don't have the power to do that in 30 minutes. So I just wanted to walk you through it a little bit. If you ever care to meditate on the first couple of chapters on Hosea, you'll see all this here. It's a nice metaphor, too, because as you all know, love affairs are affairs. They play out in stages. It's not a momentary thing or a one-off even when people fall in love, there's usually some subsequent narrative. And so what this metaphor of Yahweh's relationship to Israel is like a man's covenant relationship with his wife allows Hosea to do is to map the love story metaphor onto the stages of Israel's salvation history. Follow me so far? So even in the first two chapters of the book, just to do it quickly, we get a love story. There's a betrothal at Sinai. This is where God makes his covenant with Israel. Yes, Israel is, so to speak, wed to God at Sinai. That's where they receive the law, yes? And they're bound together by the blood of the covenant to be God's people ever after. They set up a home together when they leave Sinai, wander through the desert, and eventually settle into the promised land. Then there's moments of infidelity when Israel turns to the gods of the Canaanites and worships them. And then uh, there's divorce. The covenant is broken. And as a consequence, the wife is sent away. That is to say, in Hosea's metaphor, the northern kingdom is booted out of the promised land, sent out from house and home, and taken into exile by the Assyrians. So I outlined that for, uh, for you in the first part of the handout that I just gave. I've given some verses from Hosea 1 and 2, so you can see the correlation that Hosea makes there. Uh, But this is not the final story in Hosea's opening chapters. Just as God did when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, so too God will again speak tenderly to his people to allure them, to call them back, and to once again start 
that covenant relationship with them. And so that's going to be a key theme. It's a wonderful reason why you have to spend time with tedious things like Old Testament geography and the military history of Israel. My insight to this, the first time I read this years ago, is an enigmatic verse, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. <laughs> it's the valley through which the Jews were departed when they were hauled out into Assyria is going to be a doorway for the return of hope. And then he says, I will call them, I will allure them to me in the wilderness, just as I did the first time. Hosea is beginning to make a metaphor, just as the Jews were called by God the first time when they were oppressed in slavery, in servitude to the Egyptians, and drawn out into the wilderness, and then brought into a covenant relationship with God, when Hosea sees, we talk about the imperishability of hope, what is one of the most grievous, desolating moments in Jewish history, foresees the coming of the Assyrians to make those ten northern tribes the ten lost tribes, he goes, that's going to be bad. And he has some pretty graphic language in Hosea. I will attack them like a bear derived of its young. I'll rip their hearts out. Um, the language describing the Assyrian conquest is unremittingly brutal as it was. But, as a prophet, as someone called to sustain God's people with hope, he says, that's not the end, that's just the beginning. You will go out into servitude and be oppressed by a foreign pagan nation. And just like you were in Egypt, I will bring you out of servitude, I will woo you again, I will call you again to be my beloved, and I will reach out my hand and gather you back into one kingdom. And that's what we call sometimes the second exodus theme in the prophets. And you can find this in prophet after prophet after prophet. They look at the tearing apart of God's kingdom of Israel. And though it is a tragedy, and though it is God's punishment for their sinfulness, they see it as not the end of the story, but the beginning of another level of God's redemption. And so, if you look at Hosea 1 and 2, you can see that the happy conclusion to this benighted love affair that went through this awful period of sinfulness, infidelity, divorce, being cast out, will end in God recalling them and indeed remaking the covenant with them. And this time, it will be a new and eternal covenant. Or if you're still uh, lingering in the 40-year translational dead zone of the outgoing, now past, ICEL translation, a new and everlasting covenant is usually the way that you remember that from the Novi et Eterni Testamenti. So um, this will be a, a theme that runs through the entire prophets also. You can see it in several of them, that God will make in the future a new covenant with Israel that shall not be taken away. Jeremiah 31, 31 says that, and I will write it in their hearts. And so this theme of a new and eternal covenant pervades the prophets, and it's tied up with this idea of God will regather his people, not only the lost tribes of the Jews into one kingdom, but also the Gentiles into one kingdom. And the constant metaphor set up is with David. Remember I told you last time that David was an imperial king. He reigned over not over all 12 tribes of Jews, but also over surrounding Gentile nations, Moab, Edom, Ammon, things like that. And so this image of David, who is already a type or a figure, an anticipation of the Messiah as king over all the Jews and also the Gentiles, becomes the figure that the prophets bring up again and again. When the Messiah comes, he will regather his people. And indeed, he will gather all of them into one kingdom under one head, as Hosea 1.11 says, and again in 3.5. So that's the big picture theme you have to have the establishing of the new and everlasting covenant by some descendant of David who will regather his people. And part of what drives that is this notion that God will conduct a second exodus. Is that okay for setting? Because we've got to get the first part of the book before we get our hands on what's going on in Hosea 11.1. Today's gospel, same thing. We heard John the Baptist today, yes? Vox Clementis in deserto, a voice crying out in the desert. Right, they ask him who he is and why he says Elijah. We'll get to at the end of the talk. But for now, are you the Messiah? No. 
Are you Elijah? No. Why are you baptizing? I am the voice of one crying out in the desert. Well, what does he cite there? It's an Old Testament citation. Anybody? Isaiah. Yeah, Isaiah 40, verse 1. Uh, same thing in Isaiah. That's sometimes called the beginning of what's called the book of consolation in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah had lots of things to say concerning the southern kingdom, about how they would be taken into captivity and go over to Babylon for more than a generation. But Isaiah also prophesied beyond that a return of his captive people to their native land. Remember we talked about that a little bit, about making straight the way? And so... A similar theme, the reason why the Book of Consolation is called the Book of Consolation, is that Isaiah there prophesies that God will regather his people. Now, the first stage fulfillment of that is the Jews do come back from captivity and settle back into the land of the southern kingdom. Well, very nice. The northern kingdom never comes back like that. Yes? That's why we refer to them still as the ten lost tribes of the Jews. But the gospel is driven by this image of a second gathering. And so, when the Christians saw the arrival of the Messiah in Jesus Christ, starting with St. John and Mary, the mother of our Lord, already at the beginning of the Gospel, when they say, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, what they mean is the regathering of God's people into one kingdom, as long ago promised by the prophets. And so, too, when you see this language that borrows from prophets like Isaiah, to say things like, oh, who is John the Baptist? He's the one making the way for the regathering of God's people. You might go, oh, that happened, what, 530 years ago? The Jews came back from Babylon. If you don't understand that second Exodus theme, that these temporal realities happening with the desolation of the northern kingdom in the 700s, and then the Babylonian captivity in the 500s, if you don't understand that those temporal realities were already understood as looking forward to God's ultimate regathering of all the tribes into one kingdom, together with the Gentiles, you miss the application. Does that make sense? And so the reason why, like in today's Gospel, John calls himself the voice crying out in the wilderness is because he sees himself as the fulfillment of what the recall from the Babylonian captivity both did and signified. It did something in history, but it pointed forward to something even greater that was to come. Remember that sense of allegory? It's something that prefigures that for which it prepares. Both are historical events, but one points to something even greater, foreshadows something greater that is to come. And so when John applies this language, oh yeah, I'm here to bring the people out of captivity. It's not like he was Rip Van Winkle in a time warp and didn't realize that it was, well, we wouldn't have called it uh, 30 AD, but uh, didn't realize that it was 500 and change years after the Babylonian captivity. He knew full well what century he was living in. He says, oh, I'm here to prepare for the people's release out of captivity, Isaiah 40 and all that, because he understands the coming of the Messiah to be the fulfillment of the second Exodus theme. Is that okay so far? Same thing is going to be going on in Hosea. When Hosea says, out of Egypt I have called my son. But, second step to get there is a fun trope, a fun repeated pattern that you can find in the Old Testament. About halfway down on the handout that I just gave, a little principle you can use in reading the Old Testament. Sometimes the forefather of a nation or a people or a race foreshadows in some way the people that arise from him. You know, they say chip off the old block to talk about how a father resembles his son. Yes, nobody says that anymore. So, <laughs> apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but there the, the apple and the tree look different, whereas a chip and a block might be <laughs> smaller versions of each other. But to take examples of this, this often happens with the patriarch Jacob, the man whom, by the power of God, has his name changed to Israel, and then his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel when they all grow up and have their own descendants. A lot of times Jacob is not only an historical personage, but he is also symbolic of what will happen later in history to the Israelites, 
So Israel is like the Israelites, where some things about Israel's biography called out for our attention in the book of Genesis resemble features of Israel, the nation's history, called out to our attention later in the books of the Bible. Little chip off the old block image here. A conspicuous example of this that's very relevant to what we're talking about today, I provided for you. Again, I like to use this with some of my students when the Old Testament seems to be a little bit arcane. Genealogies can be like that sometimes, although there's fascinating material in genealogies and it's all there for a reason. We just, again, don't know how to read them insightfully. But there's this little, after the exciting stuff happens in Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham, you get a couple chapter travelogue of Abraham's life in Genesis 12 through 14. And it might initially seem to be a rather eclectic gathering of random material about Abraham's travels and doings. But you also know the saying that sometimes you cannot see the forest for the trees when you're zoomed up too close to something. One of the things that can happen when you're reading, especially when you get little story after little story, is to fail to perceive a bigger cast of the whole narrative. And so I outlined for you just a little bit a couple of events from Abraham's life in Genesis 12 through 14. Because in those three chapters, he does a variety of things. There's a famine, a little food shortage, and so he descends, he goes down south into Egypt because of the famine. That's in 1210. When he's down there, he faces uh, what I call a threat of assimilation, just to make it a little more obvious where I'm going, God had just made with him, in the beginning of chapter 12, a covenant. And unlike the other covenants God had made, unlike his relationship with Adam and Eve, and unlike his covenant with Noah, both of those were with all humanity, this special endowment that God made to Abraham was only with him and his descendants, a select subset of the entire human race. And so family identity all of a sudden becomes important. That's why the Jews to this day call themselves the children of Abraham. But right off the bat, When Abraham leaves the promised land, they go down into Egypt, that family identity is threatened by assimilation. What do I mean by assimilation? The Jews are still concerned about to this very day. Being intermarried amongst a Gentile culture and having all of your covenant heritage and Jewish identity eventually mixed in beyond recognition to the surrounding pagan Gentile environment. Yes? Uh, And so this assimilation happens in a rather direct way. Pharaoh says, nice wife. (laughs) So Sarah is taken captive by Pharaoh in Genesis 12, 14 through 15. But that's ultimately a threat. Why? God just made a family covenant with them, and then all of a sudden, right off the bat, there's a threat of assimilation. But God miraculously intervenes by means of plagues. Now, bells should start ringing at this point about what this series of Abraham's life events might symbolize. And after the plagues, Pharaoh says, go, and please, take things with you as a recompense for any inconvenience I might have caused. Sorry, I see that your God is a very powerful God, and I've gotten somehow in the way of his plan. So, as we sometimes call what the Jews did to the Egyptians in the Exodus, the despoiling of the Egyptians, are you familiar with that term? They go away with spoils. When you are despoiled, someone takes your spoils with them. And so even here, too, Abraham despoils the Egyptians. And then he returns to the Promised Land in 13.1. And then he fights a war with some Canaanites. And then, after a victory, he receives blessing, divine blessing from Jerusalem by the priest king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek. Now, does that pattern, since you know I'm leading somewhere, what does that map onto in terms of later Jewish history? The whole Exodus story, Yes? starting at the very end of the book of Genesis, where, remember Joseph getting sold into slavery? We talked about that last time. And then the brothers have to go down there because of famine, and they discover that Joseph is not only not dead, but alive and well and in a position to support them. But then they are taken captive by the Egyptians. There arose a new pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and so their going down into Egypt turns into a trap and a snare, and they find themselves in servitude. But then God delivers them by means of plagues, and they despoil the Egyptians. And that gets us all the way through to the midpoint of this outline. But you have to get into the conquest, which starts in the book of Joshua, to talk about actually getting back into the promised land. Yes? 
And further than that, the conquest takes us all the way through the book of Joshua. And if we take this outline as sort of reflecting events in advance, when did the Jews finally possess Jerusalem? Under David. Yeah. So if you take a look at this entire Genesis narrative of Abraham's life, and you're aware of the trope, the theme, that the forefather sometimes prefigures events in the race or nation that are sprung from him. You can see in this little travelogue, Genesis 12 through 14, a pre-capitulation, to bend the English language a little bit. We've made a word prequel, yes? When a movie wants to go back and tell you the before story before the, that picks up before the main blockbuster timeline actually begins. So we get a little prequel of Jewish national history in the biography of Abraham. And in some ways it's very consoling. God tells them first as in words, tells Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be slaves and sojourners in a land that is not their own, but I will bring them back here. And then, if it's something that the Jews need further consolation about, forefather Abraham did the whole thing in his own person. Yes? Not always consoling when dad tells you that. Don't worry about it. In my day, we had to go to school with no shoes, walking through the snow. So if I did it, you can do it. But Father Abraham did all of this in his own person before it was accomplished nationally. Got the basic idea? Now take those two things, put them together, and you'll see what Hosea is doing. When he looks at the infant Jesus and sees his flight into Egypt and eventually coming back out of Egypt when Gabriel says it's okay and says, out of Egypt I have called my son. What he's doing there is first seeing Jesus as the beginning of this second Exodus narrative. Because he's making a parallel. Remember, just like we talked about twice already, prophets like to compare the beginning of the second Exodus to the beginning of the first Exodus. So too in Jesus' life, we see him coming up out of Egypt. So one, it hits with this whole Old Testament prophetical theme of here is the Messiah come to regather his kingdom. And the first stage is kind of the bell that's supposed to clue you to that analogy, if you're enmeshed in the spirituality of the Old Testament. And the second theme is that Jesus, in his very person, is doing this. Right? We sometimes talk in Catholic theology in fancy terms about the capital grace of Christ. It makes it sound like it's monetary or something, the capital grace. Christ is the head of the mystical body. Caput is the head as John's Gospel says, of his fullness we have all received. There are no graces of our redemption that Christ does not possess in himself in even fuller measure. Yes, all the grace that the mystical body receives come through the head, which is Jesus. He possesses them first in plenitude, and then he communicates it to us, members of his mystical body, the church. Yes? And so what Matthew is showing you here is that Jesus first, in his own person, just like Abraham prefigured the entire nation of Israel sprung from him, Jesus first, in his own person, is beginning to accomplish the work of redemption that he will later communicate to us, his church. Matthew's Gospel is very beautiful. It takes us from this moment all the way through to the Great Commission. Yes? Go therefore and baptize all nations, and lo, I am with you always until the end of the age. And so we see this wonderful movement of Christ first coming to earth, accomplishing our redemption, being tempted by Satan when we talked about the Joshua prophecy, both in the temptation in the desert and his passion, performing works of righteousness before God the Father his entire life, and then finally making a once and for all atoning sacrifice for all mankind's sins. Christ does it all in himself, and then passes on that economy of salvation to us, his mystical body, to continue. And so that's what Hosea citation is doing here in the middle of Matthew's gospel. He's showing to us the beginning of the second exodus concretely in the person of Jesus to throw the spotlight on him as redemption incarnate. This is the personal beginning of the economy of God's redemption of mankind through gathering them into one kingdom. Does that make sense? We're okay there? So that's why Matthew is not just playing with text. Sometimes that can seem rather arcane. You say, why does this prophetical citation fit? 
And, and that's part of the reason why. You have to get the spirituality, not only of what the Old Testament prophecies historically signified, but what Jews already saw them as foreshadowing, to see how the evangelist puts them together. Now, a little bit easier terrain, we can shift gears and look at the prophet Micah. This one you'll see in the uh, lectionary cycle. I'm certain I should have located exactly where. We find it again in Matthew's Gospel. When the wise men come looking, they know that there is a king born somewhere nearby, and they come to King Herod and ask him, where is the newborn king? So Matthew 2.1, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, Behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired where the Christ was to be born. Now there's a lot of dark foreshadowing and dark humor going on in those two verses, if you, if you missed it. Um, Herod is an Edomite. Yes, he is a puppet governor, a non-Jew, set up over Judea, the place where the Jews live and dwell. And uh, it was said of him that it was better to have been a dog in Herod's house than one of his sons, because we know that he was a paranoid figure who even killed two of his sons because he believed that they were trying to overthrow him and usurp his rule. So when this crabby fellow hears that there's a king of the Jews born, someone who by right should possess the throne in Jerusalem where he happens to be set up as puppet governor and he's already got his fingers dipped in blood to retain that throne, oh boy, is that not good news. So that underlies King Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. If you had that kind of tyrant on the throne, uh, you'd be pretty worried too. And so because he's an Edomite and not someone steeped in Jewish piety, he has to say, now I know you have a bunch of information about the Messiah. Please find someone who knows his Bible so I can be told where the Messiah is to be born. So then they have to go get the chief priests and the scribes who know what they're talking about. And they told him in verse 5, this is Matthew 2, 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come forth a ruler who will govern my people Israel. And that's our citation of Micah 5.2. And below that, and what I just gave out, I've broken out the entire prophecy verse by verse, but maybe we should just read the whole thing. It's only four verses, and that way we can get its complete overview and then zoom into it verse by verse. So here's Micah 5.2 in the RSV. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are little to be amongst the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in travail has brought forth. Then the rest of his brethren shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this shall be peace. And so once again, if you look at the immediate context of this prophecy in Micah 5, in the Old Testament, the prophet springboards from proximate historical events to ultimate ones in the time of Christ. A momentous event in Jewish history foreshadows an even more momentous event in Jewish history to come. Micah starts in 5.1. Now you are walled about with a wall, siege is laid against us with a rod they will strike upon the cheek of the ruler of Israel. He starts with an image of Jerusalem besieged. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. Both of them foresaw the besieging and ultimate destruction of Jerusalem. And so he starts with an image of Jerusalem besieged, and then proceeds to an image, ultimately, of Jerusalem under the glorious reign of the Messiah. Does that make sense? This is the common pattern of prophetic consolation, is that while it's not sort of denying that what's going to happen is bad, but rather saying, at the end of all of this, God has a providential plan that will bring more good net than there has been evil leading up to it. Does that make sense, how the prophets sometimes console? They never deny the reality of evil, and they also see it in a certain economy of 
punishment for sin and a test of faith and as something which can be redemptive or offered up as a prayer, as a work of grace for others. But at the same time, at the other end of it, they always see the more glorious hope that God has prepared for his people. So too here. So he starts with an image of Jerusalem besieged and then gives us this description of the coming of the Messiah. The place name is something that's obvious to us, yes, in Matthew and in Micah. So one nice thing is that we're told where he is to be born, which may be about as far as you go if you uh, just glance down at your footnote when you're reading the Gospel of Matthew and go, oh, Micah 5.2. Somewhere in Micah they must have said, hey, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Done. But if you keep going, uh, there's a lot more that Micah says in this verse. God promised, I think as I might have hinted to you last time a little bit, this might have came up, that the royal line in Judaism would remain forever with the tribe of Judah. Yes? Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of all the nations, or all the Gentiles. Goyim, it means the other nations, the non-Jewish ones, i.e. Gentiles. And the other major promise that I've cited for you is 2 Samuel 7, when God by covenant promises to David and his descendants that the throne will never depart from the line of David. And so the mention of the tribe of Judah is not surprising, but the fact that it comes from a small and humble little town in the tribe of Judah might be new information that's insightful here. And it is fitting, too, with our Lord's humble circumstances of his nativity, yes, He's not born like Solomon was, probably surrounded by silver and gold uh, in the midst of an already lavish royal house, but is instead born hidden and humble in a little place called Bethlehem. Literally, house of bread, Bethlehem. Greeks smooth things out so nicely. <laughs> we have the euphony of the Greek language to thank for uh, that we don't say Hoskana, but rather Hosanna. Uh, so too, Bethlehem, house of bread, Bethlehem. Uh, some people wax Eucharistic, uh, Cyril of Alexandria. This is not something I plan to say, but I think it's so beautiful, I'll shovel it in anyway. Um, we find our Lord uh, not only born in the house of bread, Bethlehem, but we first see him where? In a manger, in St. Cyril. I think it's of Jerusalem, but it could be of Alexandria. I forget which. It says something like, So we see our Lord where we expect to find food. Man, through sin, having made himself as base as the beasts, now looks down and sees in the place where animals feed the bread of life, who will restore him to his proper divine vocation. So you get sometimes these Eucharistic meditations of the fathers on Bethlehem in the manger, but that aside, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Now that's an interesting phrase, and it's a duplicated phrase, and sometimes, as you know, Hebrew duplicates to beautify something poetically. You know, you have gorgeous eyes, you have lovely eyes. We just did the Song of Songs at Christendom, so uh, it did not go so well teaching them maybe to woo women with biblical language. Um, you know, calling a young woman's neck like an arsenal doesn't go over so well these days. Uh, but, but at the same time, you get a lot of examples of this Hebrew tendency to emphasize by uh, alliterating or repeating or saying the same thing in somewhat different words. So we have this double phrase whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Now, that's a tricky phrase, of old, and if you do a little bit of, like, dictionary lookup, some very patient men, already going on in the time of St. Thomas Aquinas in the medieval period, uh, they began to make concordances. Do you all know what concordances are? Well, for those that don't, some patient men have basically made a dictionary out of all the words that appear in the Bible, alphabetized them, and then give you every verse where that word appears after it. So if you want to go, oh, please tell me every place where uh, the word, I don't know, Nazareth appears, you open your concordance dictionary style to Nazareth, and lo and behold, you get all the verses where Nazareth is. Now, it's a Protestant website, but I have to tell you, I love it to death. Blueletterbible.org has digitized this, and you don't have to know the biblical languages at all to extract the fruits. You can click on a biblical verse, click on concordance, get every word broken down in the Hebrew, click on it again, get a Strong's Dictionary lookup and a whole list of all the verses where that verse appears. It makes looking at keywords in the Bible so fast and so easy. 
blueletterbible.org. Is that okay to plug? Just don't take Matthew Henry's commentary too seriously. They've got a lot of Protestant commentaries and KJV text, but I'll tell you that digital concordance is sweet. Um, you can get through uh, so many word studies so quickly with that tool. It's amazing. So you can pull up of old and find that it does mean, yes, sometimes of sort of traditional antiquity. So sometimes David's line is merely described as being of old because it's a few hundred years old. Sometimes it means events that are in the primeval history of mankind. You know, Adam and Eve, way back in the days of old. I think sometimes people say, back in the day, these days. <laughs> Some more force, but way, way back. And then sometimes, and I gave you two references, uh, it refers to God's antiquity, which is a distinct antiquity. right? God pre-exists, and it even becomes bending the English language to say pre-exists. Before anything else came to be, God already is. We want to say it strictly, but we bend our conception of time a little bit. We say God pre-exists everything. It's bad metaphysics because there's no before the beginning of everything. But to talk about God's eternity, sometimes this phrase, God who exists from of old, is used. So I gave you one in Deuteronomy 33:27. Now they translated it here in the RSV as an adjective. The eternal God is thy refuge, but it's literally the God of old is thy refuge. Well, it's not like he's tacking on the years, right? And it's not like he has a kind of antiquity the way that Methuselah has an antiquity or a human tradition has an antiquity. So the RSV rightly rendered this here, the eternal God is thy refuge, or so too Psalm 55, 19. Now that's kind of eh, suggestive, but it doesn't really get you very far whose origin is from of old. So sometimes interpreters say, well, this just means that the Messiah's origins will be from the house of David. We talked about the Jesse tree last time. Uh, but then it's reinforced by the term from ancient days, literally from the days of Ulam. It can be a word that means forever or eternity. The Vulgate here translated it, adiebus aeternitatis, from the days of eternity. So some people have looked at this prophecy and thought that they glimpsed here an indication of the divine origins of the Messiah. Not only of old, which could mean way back, but doubled in its force, and from the days that are from forever. Uh, God is described as ancient of days in the book of Daniel. So uh, Christian reception of this prophecy has seen in it a bit of a hint of Christ's divine origin, as we're told in uh, Luke 1.35. Right when Mary says, how shall this be, because I do not know a man, and the Holy Spirit shall overshadow you, and therefore the child shall be called the Son of God. And so already in the virginal conception of our Lord by Our Lady, there was an understanding of the divine origin of the person of Jesus. But uh, the next part of verse 3 is also interesting in this connection. Again, historical context, oppressed Israel is looking at this prophecy of its siege going over to a prophecy about the coming glorious reign of the Messiah. And it says, Therefore he, meaning God, shall give them up until the time when she who is in travail has brought forth. Now, that can also be a rather generic reference. Yes? Babies born every day in Israel. Yes? So either it's a completely generic thing, or an unspecified, really vague prophecy because we're not told anything else about she who is in travail will bring forth. Verse 4 moves right along, and then the rest of them shall come back to Israel, and they shall, he shall stand and feed his flock, etc. So it's not like this is the first introductory phrase of some further description of who this she is. Micah simply says, they will be without their king redeemer until she who is in travail has brought forth. And then we don't get any further specification of who she is. Except, we know that Micah and Isaiah knew each other. How do we know that? Who said they shall beat their swords into plowshares? That's the one you all remember. <laughs> Micah said it too. They were aware of each other's prophecy, it seems. I provided you notes there, Micah 4.3 and Isaiah 2.4. Both say the same thing. They lived approximately at the same time. Could Micah have had in mind here, with his unspecified until she who is in travail has brought forth, Isaiah's great prophecy of the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, Isaiah 7.14. It's an intriguing hypothesis. 
I'm not, you can't say for sure what Micah had in mind, but nonetheless, if he's thinking of the coming of the Messiah, if he's thinking of the Messiah's origins from of old, from the days of eternity, and he also knows that the Messiah, because of Isaiah's prophecy, will be born of a virgin, well, that doesn't happen without divine intercession, yes? And so, again, here we might have a depth of the Messiah's mysterious origin in Bethlehem that indicates to us some signs of his divinity. And then, after he's brought forth, then the rest of his brethren shall return to the people of Israel. There again, muted though it is, you can see your second Exodus theme. When this heir of David, the Messiah, comes, he will regather his people into one kingdom. I harp on that because that's the foundation of the Catholicity of our church. Yes? It's what should be the mainspring of our desire to evangelize everybody. It's what has carried the gospel to all four corners of the earth because we're not satisfied until we know that the kingdom of God has included all humanity. Yes? Whether it's the person next to you in the pod at work or whether it's the person whom you might reach only by donating to a missionary society that goes to the great wild blue yonder of Papua New Guinea or someplace where I'll probably never go or even see, uh, you are forwarding the Catholicity of the church. You should be striving to forward the Catholicity of the church in everything that you do. And so when I see this in the Old Testament, I say already there is Israel again uh, about to blossom. The prophets love to use that image. It's what's going on with the branch bursting forth ready to become, as Isaiah says, a light to the nations, and so we should as well. And so if you see this Micah prophecy in its full context, yes, born in Bethlehem, in the house of bread, but whose origin is from of old, from the days of eternity. In fact, it might be tied up with the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and then when he comes, he will regather his kingdom. And then, 5-4, he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great until the ends of the earth. There's your Catholicity of the Great Commission once again. And he shall be peace. We talked last time about Isaiah 9-6. Yes, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. That's another indication of the Messianic reign. We talked about in Zechariah 9-9, the peaceful coming of the Messiah upon a donkey to Jerusalem. So, another verse about Messiah, Prince of Peace. I will hasten on to the last bit. Take a look with me in Luke's Gospel. We get a wonderful narrative about the coming forth of John the Baptist. Quite fitting, since we read about his coming in today's Gospel. This is the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah while he's serving in the temple in Luke 1. So let's pick up in Luke 1, 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he shall drink no wine nor strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So that's what we're told about the origins of John the Baptist, even before he comes forth. John's very name means grace or God's favor. And I don't know if you know what that business is about he shall drink no wine or strong drink. Someone's correctly thinking of Samson, yeah, and he and John share an institution. Someone else may have said it. The Nazarite. Okay, so you know what the institution of the Nazarites was in ancient Israel? A special mode of religious observance. It was uh, something taken by vow, either for a temporary period, minimum 30 days, but you can make it as long as you want, or for life. Sometimes people were dedicated to be perpetual Nazarites from their birth, such as John, such was Samson, such was Samuel. But this is a particularly ascetical mode of Jewish life, where they would abstain entirely from anything fermented, no wine, no strong drink, nothing that could even be like raisins that have gotten a little funky, couldn't eat it if it was fermented. Um, you had to abide by an even more meticulous standard of ritual purity, similar to the priestly code of ritual purity. And then uh, several other things, and the outward sign of the Nazarite was that he did not cut his hair. 
for which I apologize, because my wife says, you've got to get that haircut. been really busy the past few weeks, so I look like a Nazarite in front of you. But that's why Samson having his haircut, that's actually the, not some magic thing, it's the vanishing of the last bond of his Nazarite identity. So he does all these things that violate his Nazarite rules during the course of his decadent life, and that's the last straw that breaks the camel's back. But so John will be a Nazarite. Number six gives you the whole detail on the Nazarite vow. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And so like the prophet Jeremiah, who was called before birth, God has a special mission for him that will last his entire life. In fact, we see him filled with the prophetical gifts when he leaps in the womb of his mother in the presence of the Christ child. Yes? In the visitation? So that's sort of your indication of his being filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. Uh, but then in Luke 1.17, that's the enigmatic verse, and he will go before him, writing sender at the college would say, unspecified pronoun, who's the him? <laughs> doesn't say, grammatically doesn't say. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Because he's quoting two prophecies from Malachi. Malachi, who comes last in the order of the minor prophets, tells us about what is called later, uh, because of him, the forerunner of the Messiah. The herald or forerunner. You know what a herald is, yes? Someone who runs ahead with the trumpet to tell you that the good news is coming. And so Malachi 3, 1 through 3, states that before the Messiah comes, God will send a messenger, a herald, who will be the forerunner of the Messiah. Here's Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver till they present right offerings to the Lord. Now that's an interesting description. We don't have uh, both of them in everyday life as well as they did in ancient Israel. But what is a refiner's fire? We still sometimes say in English, he's in the crucible. You heat up metal, you put it in a furnace. Sometimes they even in the Bible describe that as trying or testing the metal. And when it melts, all the dross, all the waste material, all the slag comes to the top. You scrape it off, and what's left is pure gold. Yes? And fuller's soap, sometimes translated fuller's lye. Uh, this is a caustic agent, kind of like bleach. Bleach is one of your most caustic household chemicals, yes? You pour it on stuff to whiten it. So John the Baptist is described here as the messenger that will precede the coming of the Messiah, who is to be like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He is a caustic agent applied to Israel to whiten them, so to speak, to make them pure, to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. And is that not what we see in John the Baptist? First words out of his mouth, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in fact, so caustic is he that he's dead by the middle of the gospel. That's how you know you're doing your job correctly as a fine Old Testament style prophet is when they seek to kill you. But the second bit of it, now he's a priest, right? Zechariah is a priest. The priesthood is hereditary in Israel. So John is also a priest. And he will purify the sons of Levi, those are the priests and the Levites, until they present right offerings to the Lord. Now there's lots of protocol about correct animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. But what is the offering that God desires most of all? Right, if you're thinking of Psalm 51, the miserere, right? Um, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. You can find that in Amos, Hosea, uh, 1 Samuel, Psalm 51. It's all over the prophets. External observances alone are worth, to use the Yiddish phrase, bubkis, uh, unless they are accompanied by interior contrition. God wants that oxen not because he's short of cattle, but because you are, you are attached to your possessions. Your heart's kind of mixed up with that. And so by having to give them up, you give up a part of yourself. God wants contrition at the heart of all of these ritual observances. And so John has come to be like a caustic agent to present the Lord and Israel purified. 
and to make the sons of Levi do rightly and present offerings not merely of external observances, but offerings of repentance. And that's John's constant call. He comes to, uh, I baptize you with water for repentance. It's literally a preposition that's like water as a means unto repentance. It's looking forward, in fact. It's not simply a sign of the repentance already achieved entirely, quietly in the heart, but this is just part of a process of bringing the whole nation to repentance for its sins. And then the second bit of this prophecy is in Malachi 4, 5 through 6. And this is where we get the forerunner being called the second Elijah. Now, if you have an NAB, you're going to, I think, look at chapter 3. Oh, I don't know. Off the top of my head. It's late. They, they number the verses in Malachi differently. There is no chapter 4 Malachi in NAB, but it's near the end of chapter 3. But if you're in RSV, it's RSV Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6, where the forerunner of the Messiah is called the second Elijah. Behold, because Malachi is the last of the canonical prophets here, he is way, way, way after the actual historical Elijah that fought with the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel and things like that. So this is several hundred years after Elijah has lived and been carried off into heaven. So Malachi writes, several hundred years after the historical Elijah lived, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. So you see why I prefaced that? It's because he's saying, I will send you in the future Elijah the prophet. Well, he already lived several centuries ago. So some Jews thought that Elijah, since he was carried up in a fiery chariot, might someday be carried back down. That's why they ask, are you Elijah to John the Baptist? They wonder if he is not perhaps Elijah come back to earth. And we could examine that at great length because what does John the Baptist wear? Camel's hair coat, just like Elijah did. Where has John the Baptist come onto the scene? At the banks of the River Jordan. Where did Elijah depart from this earth? On the banks of the River Jordan. So there are all these things, his ascetical mode of life, his manner of dress, the place of his appearance, that make John look like, in his person and his manner, Elijah. Elijah was a one-man preaching army, yes? Sent to recall the decadent northern kingdom to fidelity to God. And so in all these ways, John resembles Elijah. But the most important way is this, Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So that's just a little versicle, a little half verse that's given to you verbatim by Gabriel in his annunciation to Zechariah. But that's the part of the important thing about reading books in their whole context. You get a little bit of, he will come forth in the spirit and power of Elijah, telling you, one, he's not the historical Elijah come back to earth, but two, he is the Elijah-like forerunner. He will go before him. Who? Well, the reason why the Greek of the gospel here doesn't tell you who the him refers to is because if you're a Jew, you know. By the time you get to the end of the verse and to turn the hearts of fathers to their children, you're like, oh... That's the Malachi prophecy. We're talking about the forerunner of the Messiah. Who's he going before? The Lord, the Christ. And so John the Baptist uh, is presented to us, the herald of the Messiah, in terms that come to us straight out of the book of Malachi. So I think that's about all we have time for. But those are some more prophecies, Hosea, Malachi, Micah, that all inform our understanding of the Messiah during this Advent cycle. So... Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you. Thank you, Deacon Carnazzo. We're not letting you off that easy because we're still going to have a little bit of question and answer. You raised a point in your talk about the time period between the end of the Babylonian captivity and the coming of the Messiah. Why was there such a, a lengthy time between these two events? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And it's one instance of a whole family of questions we can raise about God's timetable, right? We could say, why were there so many years of slavery in Egypt? Why were there uh, such a long wait between Adam and Abraham? Yes? While I don't think scripture or tradition permits us sufficient insight into God's providence to, to maybe nail down why it down to the year, some general principles you can find from scripture and tradition, uh, a lot of times the Bible uses the phrase, the fullness of time, there's a kind of divine pedagogy where God reveals things progressively, builds towards salvation progressively, and that involves not only just God saying things, but they're being genuinely received 
by the people who are supposed to receive those things. Sometimes the human race learns lessons rather slowly. It would be a big, big answer to make a, a thorough response to that question, but I think something in it will be related to the economy of God's grace, moving hearts and souls, the shaping of historical conditions, because the stuff isn't myth, and it's not just sort of abstract philosophy. God moves through history. That's the distinctively Judeo-Christian form of revelation. So historical events, because they're free-willed events, sometimes take a lot of time to unfold. And then God, in, the, in his mercy, gives sufficient time for the revelation he's revealed to be received and cherished and responded to appropriately, even if that means waiting sometimes throughout generations of hard-heartedness or infidelity. So I think those three things, like the pace of revelation, the fact that revelation happens through free-willed historical events, and uh, God's wanting his word to be sunk into hearts at least deep enough for the next stage of his providential plan to unfold are all part of it. But I think at the same time, he alone also has insight into exactly why the stage was only set like in the first century AD for the Christ to come. I don't know if anybody could tell you that. Could you uh, elaborate again about the uh, lost tribes? You mentioned it, and I never got the whole teaching that you had said. Okay, just in a nutshell, and we talked about them a little bit last time, so I may have presumed on something you did not hear if you weren't at the last one. They're the ten northern tribes. Originally, David and Solomon reign over all twelve tribes united in one kingdom, but then after Solomon, the tribes split, ten versus two. And so the ten northern tribes become the kingdom of Israel, and they last from 922 to 721 B.C. when the Assyrians come and conquer the northern kingdom and drag them off into exile, ne'er to be seen again as a united people. They yet assimilated into the Assyrian Empire. Nonetheless, prophet after prophet prophesies their restoration. Now, we've never seen a group of Jews come back with ethnic identity intact as a united people tramping back from somewhere in Mesopotamia. Uh, how this occurs, and this is part of what the second Exodus theme traces, is through the Catholicity of the church. Since one cannot unscramble the omelet of assimilation, so to speak, uh, the way God brings all of his people back together is to no matter how far gone they've become in terms of assimilation into the pagan nations to which they were dragged, God gathers them all again by calling everyone. That's why Jesus can say this paradoxical thing. I am come only for the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel, and go therefore and baptize all nations. I mean, those are two quizzical statements. How do those actually set side by side together? I think one insight into that is that the universal call of evangelization is what regathers Israel into one kingdom, the Catholic Church. I have a question about the relationship between God and Israel and Hosea and his wife, Gomer. Yes. Uh, Hosea was told to take a wife of prostitution. It's not as though she became unfaithful later on. That's like right. Israel did. She was unfaithful from the get-go. Mm -hmm. So how does that relate to Israel? As Israel already was not free from sin even by the time that God made a covenant with it, right? It is not the case that the Jews only began to sin after Sinai that's part of God's saving initiative, right? The progress of the covenants is marked by a continual realization that man falls short. Flood happens, eight people are saved by water, a figure of baptism, says Peter, and then uh, shortly afterwards, the drunkenness of Noah and the sad business with his sons. Sin springs up anew. That multiplies, and then God makes a new covenant with Abraham. Uh, but we see already, why is the fourth son, Judah, the heir to the covenant blessing of the throne, because the first threes were shlemiels, again, to use a little Yiddish. Uh, and so uh, there's a constant presence of sin tainting the divine plan, and I think that's true of Israel before its moment of definitive election at Sinai, as well as afterwards. So did Hosea actually live that life? He took Gomer, and then he named his children all these crazy things, and then he, I mean... Really? Yeah, uh, well, there's a couple things about that, just to put a little bit of background on it. It might be a little bit gory, but um, ritual prostitution was an unfortunately widespread practice in Israel that they picked up from the Canaanites. Certain Canaanite fertility deities were worshipped by young women giving themselves over to the cult of Asherah, which would involve serving at temples, but uh, this sort of sacred prostitution 
was something to which women would often give themselves for a year or two before they married. So it's not quite so off the wall as you might imagine in the modern day setting. So when she's described as a harlot, that could refer quite fittingly to refer to a nation that's given itself to Canaanite idolatry to this particular practice of ritual prostitution that plagued the divided kingdom. Thank you, okay. Professor. I, I particularly liked that last question because in almost every commentary on sacred scripture that you would turn to, there would be questions as to the authenticity of the stories that you find in the Minor Prophets, and that's why I very much appreciate Professor Janisowski's faithful presentation. And that's why it's important what we're doing here at the Institute to get this information out there. Orthodox, faithful, Catholic education available to all. So thank you very much for your wonderful presentation. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.